0: I don't have a water bottle when I walk in the class. <laughs> so sorry if my throat starts to give way. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's too late. There is no return now. No. Yeah, I know. Well, maybe, but <coughs> it's okay. we we got more important things to do. A couple of announcements. Um, one is, obviously your proposals are due today. So please turn those in, and you're saying, how do I do that? And when do I do that? Well, let me answer the when question first. By tonight, so like you know, like 11:59 ish. You know, you can get it in. Um, and yeah, get those into me though. So far, I've read a bunch of them. Some of them from this class, a lot from Minor Profits, and they're all fine. It's not. This is not crazy stuff. Okay, this is just like, give me an outline so I know what you know that you know what you're relatively doing. That you've read some sources, uh, you know what you're talking about, or uh, at least I'm confident that you sound like you know what you're talking about, and then I'm just, I just check it off, like yay, or I check it off and say revise this, and you don't need to show it to me again, you just need to do what I tell you to do, or three, I say redo. I don't think you guys, I think most of everyone is going to be in number one or number two which basically means you're fine, right? You just make the changes I need you to make so it kind of makes sense with the structure I need to have it in, and then we're all good. And then you just write out your article for in the next several weeks. Um, Where do you turn it in? When, I think we have it, but where? You can upload it. There should be upload links now available. Just like you upload those SPPs, you can upload your wiki project proposal. Uh, There's something on there for that. if that makes you nervous and you don't want to do it, that's okay. You can email it to me. That's okay too. Or you can turn in hard copy to me. That's fine too. In fact, if you do have some extra paper, uh, I know because it costs money to print. And does it still? Yeah. yeah. You know, you're, you've printed enough Java Juice coupons and things like that. Uh, <laughs> You need one. Uh, the thing is that uh, no, I'm just joking. Uh, the the it, if you print, it, I might actually prefer it, but there, it's okay because sometimes it's easier for me to draw on there. Like, okay, switch this around. Does that make sense or something like that? Instead of having to explain it to you in a comment bubble and Word, um, it's your call. E- any any which way you want to do it, I'm fine with. Okay. Any questions for me? Yes. Um, if we're not doing the wiki thing, you don't have to do anything. Okay. Sweet. Until the end, then you have to do a lot. <laughs> okay, yeah. And that the final paper is due just the day of. The, the day of the final. Oh no, I don't know. It's, I don't think it's the day of the final. I think it's like the Friday before the finals week or something. Because <laughs> I do want some time to grade it. You know. Yeah. Do we have a final? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I mean, there's the day of the final. But doesn't mean we have a final on that day. you know It's like, it's like in Israel, right? Um, there's Christmas like Christmas exists. It's December 25th that's the official day. But in Israel, there's nothing that happens on Christmas. You just go to school, you do everything normal, it's very cheesy. But of course it is kind of Jewish and nation and they don't like Christmas. So they intentionally schedule things to make you do them. Like, uh, <laughs> if you have, like if you're doing a touring cl- tour guide class, they'll make the final on Christmas so that you can't celebrate Christmas. That's just hilarious. Okay, anyway, um, I don't know what. Where- so it's Christmas without Christmas, right? Just like not everywhere in the world on Thanksgiving celebrates Thanksgiving. So on Master's College campus, it's the day of the final, but not every class is gonna celebrate that day. We're not gonna celebrate that day, you know? All right, okay, good. Any other questions for me? Uh. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, never mind. It was just about the final research paper being due and then the wikis are due the the next week. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, there's a reason for that. (laughs) One, because I've already given you a lot up front to do and then the final, the final turn-in for the wiki assignment is you uploading it to the website. And what I do is I have my secretary, or maybe I'll have a research assistant, just say, it's there, check. It's there, check. It's there, check. And then you get your grade. If it's not uploaded, you don't get a grade. Or, well, you do get a grade. It's just the same thing as not getting a grade, which is a zero. Uh Uh-huh. So do we have to be in class for the the final? Wait, say it again. Do we have to be here for the day of the final? We're not... We're not celebrating the day of the finals, so you don't have to be here. I mean, if there's another class that has a final on that day, you probably should be here for that class, but for us, I mean, you could if you want, you could be in this classroom during the final and just walk around and remember me drawing pictures on the board and stuff and, and reminisce and pray and that's you're welcome to do that, you know. This this room is your room for that time period, but you know, you could have a party. We could celebrate David's death. You know? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I don't, you know, whatever you want to do. So, Okay, any other questions for me? <coughs> yeah? You pointed out that we have class on Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving. No, we don't. <laughs> We're going to celebrate that holiday as opposed to the day of the final. Here, here's what happens, right? I hate writing course schedules. I, I, I better take this off the recording, but I hate, like I hate sin, writing course schedules. <laughs> they drive me crazy. One, because I'm never going to follow a course schedule. That's ridiculous. Two, because on top of that, you think I'm going to, so you get... You get nervous when I don't, and you stop trusting me. This thing is antithetical to a teacher-student relationship. And then third, I've got to keep track of every single possible date. Like, oh, on this day, we have Day of Prayer. And on this day, we don't have class for this reason. And on this day, we have, you know, Outreach Week. But on this week, we have InReach Day. And this day is c Dub, c Dub Special Dorm Day, you know. it's like. So I'm like and I have to keep track of all that and figure out how to arrange a schedule based on all that. And there's going to be mistakes like Thanksgiving. You know? It's just going to happen. Why? Because I've got to vo- juggle the entire campus calendar and everybody's calendar. And I you don't know, it just, oh, 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 whatever, you know, just. <laughs> We're not going to have class on Thanksgiving, you know. You're going to have turkey or something. <coughs> And you can give thanks for the Davidic Covenant. Now, that's serious. Yeah, so, basically, like I say on the first day of class, the course schedule's in there because the United States government says, I have to have a course schedule in my syllabus. If they didn't say that, I wouldn't put it in there. Right? But, like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a truthful course schedule. But there has to be one in there. And so... My joke is from now on, my course schedule is going to say, here are the dates, they're not even right, and here's TBD, 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 be determined the whole way through. And it's (laughs) going to be legal. I mean, it's just so funny what they make. They make us now give, do you know this? They make us give the ISBN numbers for books. And I'm like, all right. And then they make us give the retail price. Like, we're supposed to, who sets the retail price? It's like, no one. So they're like, oh, just find out Amazon. Well, Amazon doesn't give the real retail price, technically. They give their own version of the retail price that they would sell for, and then they discount it, right? So it's like, so who really sets the retail? No one sets the retail price. The retailer sets the retail price, but retailers set different retail prices. It's like, oh, such a headache. You know, and we have to have it like before we even know what classes we're teaching. You know, it's like, oh, okay, great. So anyway, this is all so that you can buy your books early, <laughs> and not from the bookstore that we're trying to desperately support. It's just like, ah, okay, that's enough. No more administration talk. You know, you just submit to the government, and you're happy about it. And it makes for a lot of good jokes. So that, that's what, that's how I look at it. All right. Well, that probably will get me fired. Um, <coughs> but to answer your question, we don't have class on Thanksgiving. And any other any other questions? That's good. You're like, I think Abner's frustrated. No, actually, I'm pretty happy. Today, Yahweh sends. It's good. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of In the midst of all these kind of odds and ends that we have to deal with, Lord, we we are thankful um, that that's all we have to deal with. And we do pray for fellow believers in the world who suffer much greater, much harder than we do uh, for the sake of the glory of your son, whom your word from of old all the way to the latter days expounds upon and whose worth is more, infinitely more, than any human being who has no failings unlike David. And for the sake of his name, those precious sheep you died for uh, proclaim your name to their dying breath. And we thank you for such a great example. And we do pray this is the week of missions that you would remind us that your name and the name of your son is worthy of the world's recognition. Uh, that The Messiah is not a person who just saves us from our sins, although that is so important, and we thank you daily for the Gospel. But He, His death, and His life, and His promises are to rule this world, because that is what He had bought, that is what He has been promised, and that is most of all what He deserves. So incline our hearts, O oh God, to still have a global outreach, a global outlook because that is what you demand and that is what your name deserves. And as we now study how you have set the agenda for the rest of redemptive history up to Christ, help us to see the gravity of what is about to take place. (coughs) Help us to encapsulate your justice. Help us to encapsulate that you are the ultimate king and you alone provide judgment and you alone provide solutions. In your name we pray. Amen. A couple of things. One, for those of you in minor prophets, you kind of see the importance of 2 Samuel for understanding the book of Micah, don't you? Um, I just can't underscore that enough. It is so essential. And the fact that, as I said, the book of 2 Samuel points heavily to the fact no man can fulfill the Davidic covenant. It must be God. It must be Yahweh. That theme is picked up so heavily, particularly by Isaiah and Micah. I mean, it's just indisputable. You must have a divine Messiah, or he ain't the Messiah because he can't get the job done. It's really true. In any case, um, uh, what you have now, up to this point, we know. David (coughs) is a bad guy, he's personally failed he is. He has violated what the capital K-I-N-G has commanded him to do. There is a massive compromise of Deuteronomy 17. You guys know that. And this is encapsulated. If there's one key word of 2 Samuel, it's what word? The word? Sent. And David sends. And at first, it's a noble sending. And then it starts to look like a pagan king. And then it starts to be promiscuous. And then it starts to be murderous. And then it starts to be adultery disguised as honor. And then, I mean, it just hits rock bottom at that point where everyone's, in a sense, thinking David is noble for sending when actually he's totally not. And in the capital K-I-N-G, because that relationship between the K-I-N-G, capitalized, and the lowercase K-I-N-G, that is the key relationship in this book. <coughs> and it was evil in the sight of God of Yahweh. And so in chapter 12 verse 1 we have the first first action of Yahweh in this entire narrative. Right? Yahweh hasn't really done anything. I mean, he's been doing a lot providentially, but he hasn't exactly shown himself. And now he does. He sends David, you thought sending made you a king. You thought it made you great, like pagan kings are great. <clears throat> Let me show you the real way to send. You know, none of your cheesy, send another army away, fight a war. I'll, this sending is going to determine the rest of history. That's what it's going to do. <clears throat> and he sends Nathan, the prophet. Where have we seen Nathan before? Yeah, Davidic Covenant. You know that there's more than one prophet at this time, yes? Nathan's not the only guy around. This is important. You send the guy who gave you, who built the Davidic Covenant to what? To destroy it. Right? It's symbolic. Not in the sense of David, you know, Nathan spiritualizes somebody. It's a symbolic action. if John MacArthur gave you a study Bible and then John MacArthur takes it away from you that would be a big deal That that would be a great insult wouldn't it now and that's exactly the man Nathan the man who built up the Davidic covenant and the one who will tear it down he comes to David he comes to him and says to him the phrase comes to him and says to him is highly reminiscent of what maybe Bashio. I never thought about that. But there's something more striking. In fact, if you're translating this too fast in Hebrew, you'll translate it wrong because it sounds exactly like what? The word of the Lord. Just read 2 Samuel 7. Verse 4. And it came about that night, what? Someone read it out loud. Then what? saying, go. <coughs> here, here you have this coming, you have, you have the to him, that's key, and you have this word of speaking. And all of a sudden, this just sounds, you have the same guy, similar phraseology, and it's, the first time around, it's to build the Davidic covenant, but the second time around, it's, I wouldn't say it's to destroy it, because it's not destroyed, but it's to break it down. I built you a house. Now it's my turn to tear it down. Now it's my turn to tear it down. <coughs> this is what Yahweh sends to do. Already, you he- see the foreboding. right? <coughs> Does David know exactly what's going on? Does he? No, David's clueless. Because Nathan shows up all the time. They're like best friends. Nathan's always in the courtroom. It's like, ah, well, Nathan, good to see you. You know, clock in at eight o'clock. You're in. All right, we begin. What's, what's the news for today? Well, I got a story. I got something for you. And there is no sign here that Nathan is speaking hypothetically, is it? He doesn't say, well, what would you say if there were two sons, you know, or two guys? It's what? This is an f- official matter of business. There were two men two men. One was what? And the other one was poor. David knows what his job is supposed to do. He's supposed to uphold the poor. He is. David knows that. And the rich man, verse 2, he's got what? flocks and herds. And notice how short this description is compared to what? The poor man, right? He's got one sheep, one female sheep, whom he buys and then he what? How does the English translate this anyway? He buys and nourishes, nourishes. yeah. that's That's the exact idea. The idea is to revive. This sheep was dying. This baby sheep was like gonna die and he revives the baby sheep. He nourishes the sheep back to health. Yes, that's exactly the idea. And um, on top of that, he raises it, and it what eats from his and drinks from his, and what also lies with at his bosom, and was to him like a daughter. Fascinating, and I'll tell you why, but what in a second, but. First, initially when you look at this, just big picture, the rich guy has lots of sheep, right? And really there is no attention to how, there's no personal attention to this because the rich man really what? Doesn't care about his flock. He just got a lot and he doesn't really care about each and every one of them. He just cares that he has a lot of them. Compared to what? The love And attention and investment that the poor man has. And the poor man gives everything to this sheep. Why sheep? Why Kevis? Why? Because Because David's a shepherd. Yeah. All right, good. Now you two have bonded. So the. uh, Uh, the, that's exactly it. David is a shepherd. The, the God is clever. God is a little more clever than David. He knows exactly what will manipulate the heartstrings of David. Yeah? How does this not go against our newlywed theory? That Uriah and Hashem were newlyweds? In what sense? Well, I mean, obviously he hadn't revived her, no, sure. Oh, you, careful, right? This is targeting one action, right? We know it's a parable. Can't make parables walk on all fours, but there's a reason why he says this. It's to manipulate David, right? Yeah, it's not like Uriah treated Bathsheba this way. I mean, there is a sense in which he does, right. but the idea is the loving care and that Unlike David, who has many wives, how many does Uriah have? One, everything's with her. <clears throat> but here, here, here's this guy, and he really cares. and David's just thinking, this guy is awesome, because this guy is who? Like me, I am the poor man, right? I'm the shepherd. Surprise, surprise. And it's so interesting, you know, all this bread, you know, eat of the food from and, and drink of his cup and and lie down and like a daughter to him. You know, why why a female sheep as opposed to a male sheep? Well, maybe because what's the word for daughter? Anyone know in Hebrew? Bot. Like a bot mitzvah. Bot. Anyone know what the word for lie down with him is? Don't pronounce this bat, okay? It's bat. Shakav. Or shakva. Put those two names together real fast. Bat shakav what do you start to hear Bathsheba and so here is our good friend Mr. Nathan Mr. Prophet Nathan Prophet Minister Nathan uh, and David doesn't pick up the clue But if you're careful, you would. All of us, in fact, throughout this entire discourse, (laughs) uh, you, you hear the Bathsheba sounding words come out. They're all juxtaposed, but they're all there. He's saying her name over and over and over again. But you just don't hear it unless you're really paying attention for it. He's making rhymes. You know, uh, you know all this kind of stuff. So here's a traveler that comes up to this guy, to the rich man, and he is not what, what? He's not willing to take from his own flock or from his own herd to make the proper provision. The word "willing" here is very important. The word "willing" here is very important. This is actually a critical point in the story because the rich man, what was supposed to happen? According to ancient Near Eastern custom, the rich man is supposed to do what? Yeah, he's supposed to be hospitable. That's part of showing loving kindness. So this person's supposed to show loving kindness and he has definitely the ability to show loving kindness, but what does he do? He takes the what? Yeah, the the sheep of the man. The kivashat. Kind of, if you rearrange the terms, what do you have again? A bathsheba. But now it's a (laughs) bathshat-ba. It's like, can't you hear it, David? Nope, can't hear it. Takes the, the sheep of the poor man and slaughters it for the guest that came. Some important parallels here. What was David supposed to do? He was supposed to show what? Loving kindness. kindness. That was what was supposed to characterize him. He was supposed to go according to the custom. And here's the tricky part. Did the man in the story show loving kindness? Yes and no. How did he... Did he have a meal prepared for the man? Did he have hospitality there? Yes, but it didn't cost him what? Anything. Here's David. And so, of course, it's not loving kindness because it doesn't cost you anything. It's not an investment. Remember what we said? If you keep sending people out and you're not doing it, then it's not loving kindness. Everyone remember that? Here's David's exact problem. He faked the loving kindness. And... and. See, for us, nowadays, we, we understand the, the total, I mean, we partially even understand, the total dishonor and shame that would result from this rich guy who has all these flocks, stealing the one precious little sheep that the other person has. We understand that, right? But what you don't understand as much is faking hospitality, right? That doesn't click with us as much. But that would've been a big deal. That would've been a big deal. You, how dare you lie to a guest about your own sacrifice for your own fame? That, that is impossible. And so what you have here is just piles and piles of ignominy on top of each other. Uh, you have the theft you have the lying and deceit, you have the lack of loving kindness, you have the breaking of protocol in ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, But you understand this in part because I even saw in your reaction the other day when I said, when David took Bathsheba to his home, to everyone it looks like what? Kinsman Kinsman redeemer. That David is the best guy in the world. What a noble man to treat his, to treat a slain hero and, and his wife in such loving care. That's what. Yes. Oh, yes. It's loving kindness, but without any what, sacrifice. <clears throat> that is the attitude that Nathan is trying to exploit. And to answer Ben's question, this tale is not to exactly parallel everything that David was and has and is and how Uriah and Bathsheba interacted. It's to exploit, to use the counseling term, the heart attitude. Yes? That's the goal. How do you like this ugly, twisted iniquity? How do you like it? And what happens? Verse 5. What happens? David gets angry. Really fascinating. It's the first time David actually gets mad. Nothing makes him mad until this moment. God has totally manipulated David in ways that you don't even we can't even really comprehend because we don't like any of you guys work with sheep for most of your life? No. I haven't either. So, you know, you're just thinking cute sheep, bye-bye sheep. Okay, whatever. But for David this would have been more painful. This would have been much more painful. Maybe, you know, if we're we're really going to be Freudian or something relative, you know, this brought up a childhood past or something, you know. But no, let's forget even that mention, as some people might actually do. This is this is near and dear to him, and what and what this man stands for. Because look at what happens. No, you can't tell. Can you tell this in English? Uh, oh yeah. Then David's anger burned greatly against the the man. Who's the man? The man in the story, right? See that? God has him exactly where he wants him. This man, David thinks he's real, and it's that man. David hates that man. I think the better translation of this is to translate the article anaphorically, i.e. referring back, and it should be, then David anger burned greatly against that man, that man, treating him as if he really existed. And the irony is he doesn't, but he, he does. Um, and the word greatly is intentional. It's not a, it's not a gloss. It's not a, it's not a kind of thing that we add in. It's in the text. It's ma'ot. It's very much so. This is, he's irate. He's losing control and you can tell that he loses control because what does he say to Nathan Surely as the Lord lives though so that's the strongest use of an oath that's the strongest use of an oath I before the Lord I'm the executor of the law here's my verdict that man what Will surely die. It, the way it words in Hebrew, he's a son of death. Daddy is his death. Because that's what he will be dead. Very, very strong, harsh language. Who is determined to kill him? Who is it? OK, <laughs> Who is determined to kill the man? David, I will execute this guy. I will slaughter him. Uh, by the way, is that really the appropriate uh, judgment for <laughs> uh, for stealing sheep? Technically, no. Okay, that's that's a little overboard. It's not the death penalty for theft. In fact, David does give the correct penalty. What is it? Fourfold restitution based upon. Anyone know what passage? It's okay. Exodus 22:1. Exodus 22. Just remember, like two and two, right like okay, doing twenty two is like mixing things that don't match, and that's actually pertaining more to adultery exodus twenty two is mixing things that don 't match in the sense of theft, okay like if you're found with somebody else's goods, there's not a match, right? so this would be a problem uh, you know you that's how i don't know whatever helps you helps you memorize things, but this is the fourfold restitution. Exodus twenty-two, verse one. You got to have fourfold restitution. That's what David should have paid. Does that make sense? That's what David, oh, excuse me. That's what this man should have done. He is absolutely irate. So note this. It's David, a, wait, what, what, what? What's the point of him saying that this man must die then? Oh yeah, that's good. We'll get to that. Death fourfold restitution. Those are the two penalties that David provided, yes? God is trying to trap David. Right? David is the king. Who's going to execute justice? The king. So, I need, God is saying, I want David to say what this guy deserves. And in the end, you know, we'll find out who it is. That's why you have to have the death sentence. It's out of emotion. But even if it's out of emotion, it's still what? The decree of the king. That's very important. God is manipulating David's emotions powerfully to elicit this response. He must make restitution for the land fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. The word for compassion is the same word as he was not willing. He was not willing. It ties you back to the idea that this man, because of all the evil that he had done and and the lack of loving kindness and the lack of compassion that he had for both the traveler as well as the whole situation, he has committed great sin against the, the community he has to die, and even when he's dead, he's going to have to make fourfold restitution. Does that make sense to everybody? They're going to kill him, and then they're going to take fourfold of his stuff away from him so that his family can't inherit. Very important. And, uh, (laughs) heh, heh, heh. You know, this is the epic line. Verse 7. Then David... Or excuse me, Nathan says to David, what? You are the man. But the the man refers to what? You are that man. You see, here's the trap. David, anger. Who is this man? This man must die. This man must pay back fourfold restitution. And what does Nathan come up for and says? You are this man. So what should David do? Die. And what must David repay? Fourfold. You said it yourself. You said it yourself. You gave the legal, and you gave the beyond legal, you gave the right understanding of the nature of these crimes. Right? Was murder, was execution necessary for the situation at hand? No, but the trap, the absolute horror and travesty of what took place merited it in David's mind. And God says, Precisely. That's your problem. You are the man. You know? So, you, the man, in this case, bad news. Verse 7 continues. The first, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. God begins to launch a covenant lawsuit. A covenant lawsuit. If you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, <coughs> God can launch covenant lawsuits against Israel. That's what the De- book of Deuteronomy teaches us: is that if Israel breaks the covenant, God can take them into court and say, "You didn't do these things. I have the right to punish you." Everyone kind of familiar with that. Should have learned it kind of in OT survey if you've gotten there yet in OT survey, but. You can do the same thing with uh, any other covenant, technically, that has any kind of stipulations or any other kind of conditions or any other kind of promises. You can take somebody into court. The idea is simply this, a covenant is no different than an agreement, like a contract. So if you dance at the master's college, you know, at fall thing or something, then Joe Keller has the right to take you into King Hall and sue you and kick you out of school. You know, something like that. God has the right to do that. And God now, the way you usually um, launch a covenant lawsuit is this. You take the person into court and you give them a history. This is what I did for you. I did X and I did Y and I did Z and I did everything through AAA. You know, and, and you did not figure out anything. I'm going to kill you. God now has begun a covenant lawsuit. David, you want the Davidic covenant? Well, here you go. Right. That's why Nathan is staged there. That's why the wording sounds the same because now it's Davidic covenant back at you in a way that you don't like. I made you anoint. I anointed you. The word there is Messiah or the word based upon which Messiah comes from. <laughs> he gives him deliverance. He allows him to replace Saul, You can even see that uh, starting in verse 8. And not only that, he, he gives to him the, the wives of your master. You know, like, that's kind of strange. And this is a mixed thing, isn't it? On one hand, is this good or bad? It's bad. Why? Because David was not supposed to multiply wives. But I gave them to you anyway when you wanted them. There was toleration there. But on top of that, why would David want to multiply the wives of his master? Or to have the wives of his master? What was the thing? What was Abner accused of originally? Sleeping with the concubines. Why? And why was that such a big deal? Say it again. Political gain. I will make it so clear I will allow you to even do something that you're not supposed to do just so that everyone understands that you're the king, that your master has no power. I let you do that. I gave them to you. Does that make sense? How much more did you want me to do? And God doesn't even allow David to finish the sentence. I gave you all of Israel and if that was too small, I would have done for you anything you wanted. That's the nature of the Davidic covenant, isn't it? The Davidic covenant is David. Look at all the promises of the Bible. They're yours. They're all yours. They're on your shoulders. You fulfill them all. You're the catalyst for everything. You are the linchpin for everything. I gave you everything. Right? So what is the next phrase, say, in verse 9? Why do you despise the of the Why do you what? The Word of the Lord. Where have we seen the Word of the Lord? Chapter Chapter 7. The Word of the Lord is what introduces us to what? The Davidic covenant. Why? And there's a double play here. Double play. First, clearly the Word of the Lord refers to the law of the Lord as well as the resulting covenant promises, including the Davidic covenant. So David disobeys Yahweh, Because he disobeys his word. We understand that. But if we also understand, as I had you, I don't think I had, did I have you guys write it in your SPP? Like, who's the word of the Lord? No. But as we discussed in class, the word of the Lord is probably who? Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah. That's why the Messiah is giving the Davidic covenant. The king is telling the king what the future ought to be. Does that make sense? You despise the king. You despised your true master by doing this evil thing. And there are three things, three things that David does, and the first of which is murder. The first of which is murder, Uriah. (coughs) He struck down Uriah with the sword. Sword is going to be a very key word. You should highlight it or something because it's, it's a very essential word here for us to understand what is about to take place. God says what is so abhorrent to the word of the Lord is you killed Uriah with the sword. Second, you have taken his wife to be your wife. It's not the best translation. You have taken his his wife or the wife of Uriah the Hittite as a wife for you. That's the better translation. And let me explain why. You have taken his wife as a wife for you, as a woman for you. Let me explain why. And you'll start to see the contrast and you'll start to see the nature of the sheep problem, right? In Hebrew, um, we can have definite articles attached to things, and that uh, emphasizes particularity. Um, It emphasizes sometimes possession. It emphasizes some kind of uh, just tangible quality. We know, grammatically speaking, that his wife, and who's the his? Urias. That's definite. That means he, his, it wasn't just any woman. It just doesn't mean it was any wife. Does that make sense to everybody? It was his wife. He loved her. It was definite. It, it wasn't just to be any kind of conceptual woman for him. But here's why I object to the English translation. Because you naturally, when you read this, you took his wife to be what? Your wife. You automatically parallel his wife and your wife. wife. But the Hebrew doesn't do it that way. It could have, it's very easy. Actually, you would use far less words. It says to be a wife you what does that now imply one of many who cares she's just a what woman she's just beautiful I just wanted her do you understand the difference now between these two phrases Uriah said this is his wife he loved her he owned her. She was particular to him. She wasn't just any woman to him. She was his wife. David, she's just a wife for you. She's just a woman to you. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see the difference between the two? Contrasting what in the narrative, in the story that Nathan originally provides us? The rich man has what? Lots of sheep. Does he care about them? No. He just what? Has a bunch. And what is David? The rich man. Um, But there was one that had definite ownership. Does that make sense? And he cared for the sheep. That's who? Uriah. He really did love his wife. And so the second thing is not only a sin of adultery, it is a sin of complete degradation of love. Um, It's interesting, because I think people might call this a crime of passion, yes? But it's not. It's not. Does that make sense? David loved her, and David cared. No, he didn't. He didn't. She was just to him a woman, you know. And I'm—I mean, that makes David sound terrible. But that's what he is right now. He's not good, right? I mean, like this is why God is judging him. He's bad, and he's—he knows it. How dare you do this? And then the final one is even far more fascinating, I think, because we don't think about it. You killed him by the what? Uh, Key word there? Sword. Sword. Very important word. Sword of the sons of Ammon. You, You not only hurt Israel, you empowered what? Israel's enemies. As a king, how could you do this? You're the king, and you betrayed your country. You empowered Israel's enemies. Um, unbelievable. So God has launched a covenant lawsuit. David, what did I do wrong for you? What did I not do for you? And David's answer is what? Well, God, you did everything. Okay, then why, why have you despised the Messiah? In a sense. Why have you despised the king that you pledged to serve by doing these three things? Why? Why? And David says, you got me there. So this is what God does. And in verse 10, we have um, the first progression, the first progression of what will happen to the house of David. Verse 10. And now, this denotes from this moment onwards, And this denotes God's verdict. Let me explain to you, David, what you have done here. This is what David should suffer personally. That's to be sure. But if you remember, what's kind of the grid? You have the world, you have Israel, and then you have who? Davidic king. Everyone remember this? And so God's saying, let me show you what's about to happen to you as a whole. What happens? The sword keyword? Sword. sword. Why is it a key word? Make the connection now.: Yeah, that, that's real, That is kind of the connection here. And the idea is this: You used a sword to kill Uriah, and you used it to strengthen the other swords of the other nations. Does that make sense? So now what's going to happen? The sword will come right back at you. The sword will never depart from your house. In fact, the wording of the Hebrew is quite fascinating. Oh, I'll just go with the never. Ad olam, forever. Until the end of the age, it will not depart from your house you will have to have a new world to have the sword stop, which is kind of important, right? Because then if you get into minor prophets, you understand when God changes the world, then the Davidic covenant can be renewed, which brings in the new covenant, and all that kind of stuff. But here, the point is this. For the rest of history, the Davidic house will be plagued, not by peace, but by what? By war. And defeat. That is what's left for the Davidic house. What does this remind you of in the Davidic covenant? What is this implementing in the Davidic covenant? That's what it's not implementing, right? Because obviously, no arrest if the sword's chasing you around, but there's something that it is implementing positively. Yeah, that's true, but that's not what we're talking about. What are you talking about? Davidic covenant? No. Now, I told you what part of the Davidic covenant, then you would get it, right? Because yeah. it would be like a verse. No, in this passage. <coughs> oh, you're to. sword will not depart. What is it talking about? Find it. Well, that's one key word. We'll get to that in a second. Sword will not depart. What is God doing? Well, it doesn't sound very much like it, is it? If the sword doesn't depart from you, if the sword doesn't... It's, 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 the, the it. True, true. But... Discipline, the rather yeah. The discipline... God says, I will discipline you with the rod of men and the blows of man whenever you what? Sin. God is enforcing the Davidic covenant here. God says, David, I've done everything according to covenant. You've broken the covenant while the Davidic covenant has a provision. This will be the state of your house until I'm totally done. I will just beat you with the sword just like you killed Uriah. Like I said and before, when does the Davidic covenant, when does the Davidic dynasty start to fall? With who? David. David is the one that causes the Davidic dynasty to fall. He already has set that up. It's just a matter of time, right? It's just a matter of time, okay? It's already set up from the very beginning to collapse, Now we have the implementation of the Davidic covenant. It's just not the positive side with all the blessings. It's the what? Chastisement side. The punishment side with all the hurt. That's because of what David has done. Uh, Yeah, and this is going to get well played off in Isaiah, but we don't have time to go there. That's the agenda. God from now on, okay, when you read the book of Kings, right? What do you think it's about? every king will what? Fall. Every king will fail. But somehow, God still preserves the line of kings in hope that there will be somehow a future king. But every king is going to be a failure. There is going to be no good king. And not only that, every single time the king comes in, instead of strengthening the Davidic house, what does he do? Pulls it further down until it's just ready to totally collapse because right now the davidic house if you're going to compare it to a structure or to a tree maybe that would be a good example it's still intact it bears fruit it's got health but there's a disease and it's just a matter of time right before that disease completely rots out the entire tree and it just will disintegrate to the ground does that make sense to everybody what we're what kings is waiting for is what well, let's see how this thing collapses, everybody. And then it does. But there's hope at the end. Anyway, that's the agenda that God has. I, my goal is to destroy the Davidic dynasty in hopes that there will be a replacement. I will raise against evil against you from your own household. Verse 11. We have the first sin... Oh, uh uh-huh. Is that connected in any way to... um, In chapter 7, it talks about raising up offspring um, uh, from him that will establish his kingdom. It's like the exact opposite. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. (laughs) Absalom is a type of anti-David. Okay, but we haven't gotten there yet. I mean, we're like about to get into verse 11. The, the first thing that we have is, David, you, you live with the sword, you did all this stuff, now it's going to turn right back against you. But what was the other thing that David did? He slept with, or he took what? Bathsheba. He just was a womanizer. And that was the second terrible thing that he had done. And now in verse 11, I'll raise one up that's exactly as bad as you are. He'll be from your own line. Someone from your own household. And what is he going to do? What is he going to do? do evil against him. Not just do evil against him. Why with his wives? Your, you took somebody else's wife and you lied with and you slept with her. Now what is he going to do? I'm going to take somebody from your own house, and he's going to take your wives and sleep with them. But where? In broad daylight. In broad daylight. It's going to be, the word for broad daylight doesn't just mean in the sun, although that's true. It also means what? If you're doing something in broad daylight even nowadays, what does it mean? Public. And here's why. Next verse, someone read it. Yeah. Indeed, you did it secretly. Wasn't that true? What was David doing? Sending. Yeah? And he used the cloak of night to hide it. And God says, I'll bring what you did inside. You thought no one could catch you. I'll bring it what? Right in front of everybody. I'll bring it from everybody. That is the punishment. That is the punishment for what you did to Bathsheba. Okay? These are two things. One, you will always be plagued by a lack of the supremacy you need to be a Davidic king. You, all the other nations will always ransack you because you supported them. You, it's like, kind of like what happens when a one nation arms another nation. What's that other nation? What can that other nation do? Come back and attack you, right? That's what God is saying to David. You armed sons of Ammon. You did that. They're going to come back and haunt you forever. It's never going to stop now. And you use the sword to kill Uriah, it will come right back against you. It's exactly eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's per the covenant. <clears throat> Not only that, but this, but what will specifically happen for your sin against Bathsheba is what? You slept with somebody else's wife, someone will sleep with yours. But you did it hidden, they'll do it in public. But on top of that, here's something to think about. Remember what God said he did for David? He gave him your master's wives. Why? Why? Political unification, unification, exactly. So what's the point now? You're not going to be unified anymore. Someone else, there will always be a competitor. And he's going to sleep with your wives to show what? What? That he's in control rather than who? You. I will shatter everything that the Davidic covenant originally gave. You had military security, but you gave it away to the sons of Ammon. No more. You had political unity. No more. It's over. The blessings of the Davidic covenant are off until I find what? The right guy. guy. That's the implication. And in verse 13, what does David say? I've sinned against the Lord. Because um, all of what we've been talking about so far is about what David has done and its impact on the rest of history on the Davidic house, right? But we still haven't really covered who? The man himself. And what does David know? I said it. What needs to happen? I need to pay what? Fourfold. Fourfold and I also need to what? Die. Die. I've sinned against the Lord. Yeah? This, this is the first time he's mentioned it, right? Because this I, at the bottom of my Bible it says, this seems like Psalm 32 is kind of referenced to this, about how he kept signing about his sin. Right. So it took him this long to admit that he did wrong. think? Yeah. Well, he's already said so. It's just that it, he didn't think it was about himself at the time. You see, what well, we don't, we, we kind of remember, yeah, David sinned real bad, but what what should the kind of tale remind us? David deserved to die. And who should have been the one who killed David? David. Right? He should have, as a king, stepped off the throne handed somebody else a sword, and said, execute me. That's what he deserved. And I think, I think, when he said, I've sinned against the Lord, he realized what had to, happen, had to be done. Does that make sense? You have to what? Die. I have to die. Uh... I, don't, I always get my classes confused, so I don't know if it, it was in this class or some other class. Psalm 51. Sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, right? Why? Because they won't save you. Not because, you know, they're just symbols and all this kind of stuff, although I agree with that whole idea. There is no sacrifice for this sin. There's no way out for David. David is not speaking hyperbolically here or piously. He's speaking legally There's nothing I can do. I'm supposed to die. And Nathan said to David what? The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That is a powerful, powerful statement. Because what would happen if David died? No more. No more Davidic covenant. Or no more Davidic kingdom. Yeah. <clears throat> the Davidic line would end. The Davidic dynasty would end. And what does God say in Second Samuel 7? Well, let's be specific. 7.14 says what? Read it out loud. 7, 14, 15. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men, and his strokes to the son of the man. Stop right there. We've seen that, right? That's the agenda from now on because of what David has done. Everyone with me on that? Okay, but keep reading. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure. Before me forever, your throne shall be established forever. Okay. The difference between Saul and David is not that one gets punished and one doesn't. It's that one gets punished and dies and the other one gets punished and survives and is sustained. Do you see that? This is the enactment of the full covenant. David, you deserve to die, but I'm going to give you grace because that's part of the what? That's part of the covenant. Even when you don't show loving kindness, and that's why you messed up this whole entire time, my loving kindness will not what? Leave you. See the contrast there? Oh yeah, David thought he could send around and be this big guy and have fake loving kindness. And then God sends. It determines history. And then He says, "Let me show you My real loving kindness." Does that make sense? You won't die. Many compare this back to the episode at the uh, at Sinai with the golden calf. It's true. There, I think there are legitimate parallels here. At Sinai, they who worshipped the golden calf, all of them should have what? Died. But God didn't kill them. Why not? Exodus 34. The Lord is slow to anger and full of what? Loving kindness. Right? Right? That's why David doesn't die. Sacrifice and offerings you you desire? Of course he doesn't desire. They won't save you. The only thing that David can have is a contrite heart and just hope that God will have mercy. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what happens. The king will crush his king The capital K-I-N-G will crush his king, but he can never crush the Davidic king. Ultimately, why not? Because his loving kindness will always remain. And our God is a God of covenant-keeping faithfulness. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what he does. But um, we still have a problem, right? This somehow is kind of finagled. But what do you have left? Fourfold restitution, right? I mean, that hasn't been taken care of. And what does Nathan say? Because Nathan doesn't just leave you know, David off the hook. What? Child will die. Yeah, your child will die. We'll talk about that first. Well, oh. no, we'll end with that. Because you have allowed the nations to blaspheme. Remember, what was the Davidic king supposed to do? The Davidic king, his job was supposed to elevate Israel and so that all the world would be blessed and all the world would be situated in the entire pre-plan of God, I guess you could say, or the foreordained plan of God. That's a better way to put it. And that's what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to glorify Yahweh. Remember, what was the sign that David was the real king? All these other nations start to come to David and say, we want to be a part of you. Remember that? Like the king of Tyre and, and even the Philistines. What is David doing? He's cleansing the idols from their land. Do you remember all this stuff that's going on earlier in 2 Samuel? That's what was supposed to happen. Now David has completely turned that on their head and said, you've given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. You've completely perverted your job. You were supposed to have it so that the enemies of God would worship him and serve him. Now, you've done the direct opposite. So I can't leave you completely off the hook. In fact, this very phrase, or this type of phraseology is used in Genesis 32 through 34. Because Israel had made made the name of God odious in front of the nations, God had to punish them. God had to teach them a lesson. Same thing with David. Which, by the way, solidifies what? When you look at David, you're looking at who? Israel. Good. Corporate solidarity, yes? The way God treats Israel is the way he treats David. And the way he treats David is the way he treats Israel. They're one and the same. And they even have a similar experience, right? Golden calf, Bathsheba. Okay, not exactly the same, but you understand kind of the epic proportions. But what does God say? I won't kill you, but who will have to die? The son. <clears throat> if you trace through the book of 2nd Samuel and Kings, the sons that die, unnamed child. He dies, right? That's a sign that God as we'll talk about next time, is going to inaugurate the discipline actions of the Davidic Covenant. Because what could David think? Hey, maybe if God spares my life, he's going to have what? Yet more grace. Right? Wouldn't that be possible? And God says, no. That's the first sign. <laughs> then who dies? Anyone know? Amnon. And then who dies? Absalom. They all start with A, so it's very easy to memorize. And who's the last one? Adonijah, four sons, dead. Did David pay four times? Yes. He just didn't pay with his own life. He paid with the lives of four sons, just so that the world knows the true king. Because. Here you put God in quite an awkward position, for lack of a better way of putting it. Is this king going to be just? Is he going to be holy? There is an absolute travesty. There is an absolute horror that has happened in the land. Is Is Yahweh going to be the real man for the job and get the job done of justice? But yet, he has made promises to this king never to really let him down, so to speak, and to always be with him. So God says, I won't kill you, David. I'll show you grace. That's an implementation of the Davidic covenant. But someone's got to pay. And it'll be your four sons. Just like you said. Question and then question. Yes? Is that how the corporate solidarity worked out? Is that what you're talking about? I think I missed that connection with the corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity is David is like Israel. Israel's like David. And what we see here is that they even have parallels in their life right now. Golden calf incident. Israel becomes odious to the nations. God has to strike them down, but shows them grace because of his loving kindness. So even though they sin, they won't die. David has the exact same thing in his life with Bathsheba. And so that's where the corporate solidarity thing comes in. Yes, sir? Yeah, I have a hard time grabbing uh, joy out of grace after four of your sons just died. Yeah. If I'm David, I... Yeah. Well, I think it's a hard lesson that he has to learn. Um, By the way, who does he weep the most for? Two of them, right? And this one, not even so much, right? It's only before he dies, but when he's dead, he's okay. We'll talk more about that in a second, or not in a second, next time. But Absalom, he cries a lot for. And that's, to me, a bad move. But, um, yeah, you don't, this isn't to make David happy, right? That's not God's interest here. God's interest is preserving the holiness of his name. See, what the nations are doing right now is they're saying, look, look at Israel, look how terrible they are. You have a guy, he's sleeping with his soldier's wife, and he's sending it out, and then, and then, he, and then he sends him on a suicide mission so he can marry her. What kind of loser, God, do you guys serve? And God says, I can't tolerate that. David has given opportunity for the nations, instead of revering Yahweh, to blaspheme him. So he has to take drastic measures. I will show you grace, David. You should die. But I also promised you in the covenant to extend grace to you and to allow the plan to continue through you. But you still have to pay. And this is the part of when God says and he still exacts punishment upon even the third and fourth generations. Right there. He doesn't. It's not meant to be like a warm fuzzy nice. Does that make sense? It's meant for the glory of God's name. Yeah. Yeah. Death is fulfilled in the death of his four sons. But isn't each man responsible for his own sin, too? Because David was the one that was guilty of it. Yeah. David's sons are not... Well, with the exception of the first one, David's sons, their death, it's like a dual death, I guess you could say. Let me put it this way. And Okay, we still have just a hair bit of time for me to explain this accurately. When we deal with judicial guilt, okay, That's what Deuteronomy is talking about when it says, you know, fathers shall not be killed for their sons, sons shall not be killed for their fathers, Ezekiel 18, all that kind of stuff. Um, But when you're... David's sons have to die for David's sin. Okay? That doesn't mean that they were guilty of his sin. Do you see the difference? If four people die in a car accident because the driver was drunk... The driver is guilty for drunk driving, right? Not the other four people, but they still paid. Does that make sense? They still paid. That's just the way it works. But it doesn't mean they were guilty. What makes things a little more complicated, and this is why the Bible is complicated, is each of them is going to die for their own stupidity and their own sin too, on top of that. But that fulfills even a greater thing. And I don't know exactly how to make the best analogy of it, but it would be something like this. If the guy in the car dies They're driving drunk, okay? And here's what you would kind of say while trying to be totally sympathetic. And I'm speaking completely hypothetical. Don't use this in a counseling situation. But let's say this was like a partying crowd. Does that make sense? And you knew that everyone's going to drive drunk, high on drugs, etc. Because they associated with these group of people, even though the person is guilty of drunk driving, the driver is. The passengers are impacted because of their own sinful habits, too. Does that make sense? That has also brought them into the core line of the sin. It's a poor analogy for what's going on here, but I hope you see what's going on. Yes, they will die for their own sin, but their deaths in the narrative fulfill a greater justice or judgment that vindicates the name of God. That he doesn't just do, oh, whatever the king wants. You know, I'm just going to let him go free. It doesn't work like that. Yahweh is the true king. He's establishing all the rest of history based upon his justice so that the world will know that the Davidic covenant is enforced and that God is holy. And that has to be the residual effect of what the world sees from then on is the holiness of Yahweh and he will not let his name be blasphemed, like David has just done so vividly by the by the debacle at in front of the sons of Ammon. Does that make sense to everybody? Alright, good. Have a good day.